Exactly. We have a drug that essentially binds to the door and locks the door all the time. It shuts the door, it slams the door shut, and it keeps the door shut. So that even though the cell may be like, I want to proliferate, I'm a cancer cell. The door says, no, you're shut. Stay in your room. You're not active. You're not proliferating. And we can actually get tumor regression as well. You're listening to Heroes of Healthcare, the podcast that highlights bold, selfless professionals in the healthcare industry focused on transforming lives in their communities. Let's get into the show. Welcome to the Heroes of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Ted Wayne. Today, we're going to kick off a three-episode series around medical innovation. We're going to have three distinguished guests discuss with us new healthcare innovations that are striving to change healthcare for the better. Over the next episodes, we'll be talking about potential cancer cures, Alzheimer inhibitors, and some interesting work being done within the ENT world of pediatrics. So let's get into the show with our first guest, Dr. Stacy Blaine. Dr. Blaine is an internationally known expert in cell cycle and cancer biology and is one of the world's experts on a protein called P27KIP1. We'll explain that one shortly. She has been studying cell cycle regulation for more than 25 years as an NIH-funded investigator. She founded Concarlo Therapeutics. Concarlo is focused on the potential of protein P27 targeted and its use and its unique ability to inhibit these three main drivers of cancer progression and drug resistance. Dr. Blaine was trained at Princeton, Columbia University, and the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. I'm excited to get into the show. Welcome to the Heroes of Healthcare, Dr. Blaine. Thanks for joining. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to it. We've been talking a little bit on the show the last few episodes about breakthrough drugs and experimental drugs and and some exciting things that are coming to the market. So today's no different. We're very excited about what you and the organization you started, Concarlo, are doing. Before we jump in, tell us a little bit about how you got into medicine and you know, where this passion came from? Well, that's a great question. I think that I was one of those kids that always wanted to be a scientist, wanted to be a doctor. I don't remember a time when I wasn't interested in science. So definitely, even as early as, you know, kindergarten was, I remember the name of that teacher, Mrs. Hartsuk, where I couldn't tell you the name of any other teachers and just being fascinated and loving that class. And then that passion just pursued and continued all through, you know, high school, elementary school. I was the kid who literally brought the frog home at the end of the year and continued dissecting it all summer because just there was more to learn and went to college to study science and actually assumed that I would go to get an MD, but I actually really wanted to be a scientist. And so I went and I got a PhD and that has enabled me to learn about science and how we translate science, things that we do at the bench, into the drugs that the clinicians then use. So for me, it's perfect interface between the actual patient experience and the, the the ideas and the thinking, the process that has to go into developing those drugs and those breakthroughs that can be then translated into the clinic. My daughter was like this, not in the science field, but from a very young age, knew what she wanted to do. And I always said that that's such a gift, right? So many of us wander aimlessly. I'm 58. I still don't know what I do sometimes, but you always kind of had that vision and that passion. 
I've heard that, you know, science chooses you as opposed to you choose science. And that was definitely the case, right? Like I always asked lots of questions. I was always fascinated by science. You know, I read about Marie Curie. My grandfather was a psychiatrist. He was actually one of the first founders of the American Psychiatric Institute. So he was sort of a scientist as well. He recognized that in me, gave me lots of science gifts along the way, gave me my first autobiography or biography of Marie Curie when I was a kid. And just, I always knew that's what it was going to be. When I was a kid, I imagined that I would have a lab in my house and that I would do work in the front of my house and then go into the back of my house and be with my kids and feed them lunch and do all those kind of things. And now that I'm a grown up, it's kind of like that, although my lab is not in my house. My lab is, you know, drive there, but it is enabled. It has been a profession that I've been able to be really involved with my kids and also still have this, this, this thing that consumes me. And I've said to my children, like, I hope that you do find something that is your passion that will carry you through your whole life. And that's the other beauty about science. It's, it's taken me from interest in school to then running a lab and now actually being in drug development and seeing the fruition of this path, right? I can see 18 months and having our drug actually in the clinic and dosing our first patients. And so it's been something that has really carried me for a long time. Was that a difficult crossroad with the MD route or the science route? Or when you got to that, that crossroads, was that clear which direction you wanted to go? I was a prime example of why exposure matters to our young people in this country. I didn't know anyone that had a PhD growing up. I knew plenty of MDs, but I didn't know anyone that had a PhD and was a scientist until I was in high school. And I had a science teacher, my biology teacher, Dr. Crabtree. He had a PhD in science. That was my first exposure of, oh, you don't have to have an MD to do this. And then when I was in college, I, you know, was studying for MCATs and I did all that, but realized like literally I did not want to take four years out of my trajectory studying science to learn about getting an MD because I knew I was never going to practice medicine. So when I was in college, I learned more about these other options. So it wasn't really a hard choice for me because I was always science. The, the medical degree was only going to be a conduit to study science. And so suddenly here was a way to just do that. And if anything, I would say by getting the PhD, it's enabled me to have a conduit into medicine, right? I, I've done a lot of translational work for the last 15 years. I've worked with amazing surgeons and pathologists and clinicians and oncologists and understand their point of view. I also teach medical school and have for the last 20 years. And so it's a very different type of learning that MDs go through versus PhDs. And so one of my challenges has been to try to inform and teach my medical students about why to appreciate and why they need to continue learn learning about science, because that's where all the drugs that they use in the clinic will come from, our PhDs, people like me. And I think that better understanding of our medical staff about that will help them be more cutting edge, will stay on top of new developments, help enroll more patients into clinical trials on a regular basis. So it's a really important avenue and an important part of medicine. So it was wasn't a hard decision. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I love that point that you bring up, right? It's that understanding, you know, it's whether you're 
manufacturing something or creating a computer program, understanding the user's experience, challenges and things makes them better. When we do it sometimes in a vacuum, those assumptions are not always right, you know, or how they apply it or what the challenge they're really seeing. So I think that that's a great point that you brought up that the PhD needs to understand what the physician, the med MD is doing so that they can work more collaboratively together. And vice versa. The MD has to understand where the drugs come from and the, the thinking that was that went into developing these drugs so that we can also understand when the drugs fail or when the drugs have unexpected side effects, right? So that we can sort of go back to the drawing board and think, well, why would that have happened? How can we improve that drug to deal with that? And I think so that that healthy interface between the two is is really essential. Great point. All right. So let's jump into Con Carlos. So in my simple terms, your passion and what you you're looking into is curing cancer. Is it as simplified as that? Or am I making a too broad of a statement? Or I know we talked about, you know, it says drug resistant cancers. So tell us a little bit more about Con Carlo and what you guys are trying to build here and how it relates to combating cancers. Sure, of course. It's my uh, favorite thing to talk about. And I'm just going to tell one little bit of history about how I got there. So I you know, did get my PhD, and then I went to work for a amazing man who was at Sloan Kettering, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And they had just discovered this brand new protein called P27. And I was literally like the first postdoc in the door to work on this as part of my training and have continued to work on this one protein for 25 years. So liked it so much that just sort of kept at it. I started my own laboratory. I started teaching a lot of other students and other trainees about this protein and let's learn more and more. And then it was, so the natural progression of this was we discovered how this protein turned off and turned on the three main drivers of all cancer cell proliferation. And by that, I mean, a cancer cell is a cell that essentially doesn't know when to stop growing and just keeps growing and growing. And that's its uncontrolled proliferation. And that is regulated by these three kinases called CDK4, CDK6, and CDK2. They are these proteins that essentially interpret signals from the extracellular environment, you know, that are telling the cell whether it should divide and make a duplicate copy of itself, or alternatively, it should be quiescent and remain in the non-dividing state. And they are sort of the gatekeepers of this. They decide, yes, we've received signals, we should divide. We're a liver cell and we've received some liver damage and now we're getting signals that we need to make more liver cells to flush out and rebuild this organ. We're going to divide. And conversely, then they also receive the signals to stop dividing. Oh, the liver is now the appropriate size again. Everything's functioning well. We don't need to birth any new cells. Let's stop dividing. But because they are the important gatekeepers, we have to control them and their natural regulator the protein that naturally helps them turn on or turn off is this protein called P27. So I was studying for 25 years the protein that was regulating the activity of the three main drivers of all proliferation, and not just cancer proliferation. Every cell in your body is regulated by these three proteins. And so I'm talking cells that divide all the time, your skin cells. CDK4, CDK6, CDK2 are on lots of birthing of skin cells because you need lots of skin cells. Cells like your liver that only divide when they sense injury or damage. 
And then also cells that are not dividing, like your cardiac lineages, they're held in that non-dividing state by CDK4, CDK6, and CDK2, and by the regulator, P27. So we were studying P27. How does it turn these proteins CDK4, 6, and 2 on? How does it turn them off? And we discovered this on-off switch, basically the way P27 was turning them on and off. And the way I like to use to describe it is think about a door. When the door is open, the CDKs are on, but when the door is shut, the CDKs are off. And P27 is the door and it gets modified. The key is either present and it opens the door or the key is absent and the door is slammed shut. And so that's sort of our small little claim to fame in my lab is we discovered the key, so to speak, that turned the door on and off. And then because of what we were talking about, I'd always been thinking about how can you leverage the science that we're studying here in the laboratory? How can we leverage that to make better drugs, better therapies for our patients? We decided to use that discovery of this on-off switch to create therapies that essentially force P27 into its inhibitory role in cancer cells and sort of, let's say it, it kicks P27 to do its job and says, hey, P27, inhibit CDK4, 6, and 2 and shut down the proliferation of these cancer cells. And so Concarlo was born in 2017. We licensed the technology that had been patented in my academic lab and started Concarlo and we were off to the races and we're now, you know, almost five plus years out. And we are now about 18 months from the clinic with our first, our lead drug, which is called IPY. And that will be, as you said, for drug resistant metastatic breast cancer patients. And drug resistance is really the issue that we have today in 22 and almost 23, which is patients that have received the standard of care, whether that be chemotherapy or targeted therapy, and that therapy may work for a period of time, and then it stops working, and they become resistant to that other standard of care therapy. And in many cases, we have no other options for them. And that's where we want to come in and provide an option for this very large class of metastatic drug-resistant cancer patients to give them an alternative to chemotherapy that we think we can then shut down the proliferation of their cancer cells, get tumor regression, and drive them back into that remission state for longer periods of time. And that's a great explanation, and thank you for using the door, because I'm not clinical, so thank you for doing that. But my understanding, the P27 is the door. You've learned how to control to say door open, door close. Exactly. We have a drug that essentially binds to the door and locks the door all the time. So it, it shuts the door, it slams the door shut, and it keeps the door shut. So that even though the cell may be like, I want to proliferate, I'm a cancer cell. The door says, no, you're shut. Stay in your room. You're not active. You're not proliferating. And eventually that actually, we then do trigger cell death because when you're held in that sort of non-proliferative state by slamming this, this door, the cell actually dies and we can actually get tumor regression as well. I'm very visual. So I'm taking the visual and thinking of them in a closet, right? The door's shut, keeping them in the closet. Do they just remain dormant? But no, it, then you can, do you attack it with a different medication or because they stay dormant for a certain period of time, they just automatically fail? So that is an amazing question because a lot of therapies just do exactly what you suggested. They just shut the door and they keep the cancer cell there. But that's actually kind of 
pretty dangerous in this era of precision oncology because what happens is that cancer cell that's behind the door, the closed door to use this continue this analogy, keeps percolating and trying to escape. And it is evolving and it's acquiring additional mutations and it's, a, it's, it's acquiring a ways and abilities to escape from the blockade that we're putting on the cancer cell. So really, it's always better to shrink the tumor. And what we find is that when you slam the door shut on all three of these proteins, CDK4, CDK6, and CDK2, simultaneously and in concert, it actually causes that tumor cell to die. So it must be such a harsh signal. We slam the door shut so with such a virulence that it actually does trigger something called tumor cell death. And that tumor cell death that we trigger is a very fancy word called necrotopus. And necrotopus, just think about it this way, it's programmed necrosis. So the tumor cell dies and think about it like a popping a balloon. It spills all the contents of the cancer cell out into the microenvironment. And that actually we're we believe stimulates the host's immune system. So now the immune system of the patient may get more involved and say, oh, we had a cancer cell here. We need to actually help this therapy, this blockade that's been put in and help clear up even more tumor cells. And immunotherapy is a huge hallmark and a huge pillar of our cancer arsenal these days. We can administer immunomodulating therapies to patients to help wake up or stimulate a patient's own immune system to do its job. And so we think that our therapy, IPY, actually will work in concert with those other therapies. And so we're exploring that as we go forward. But we do get this tumor regression. And so we do see tumor cell shrinkage. And that is one of the ways that we believe we'll be able to extend the overall survival of these patients. Is boosting my immune system, knowing that this is going on so that there's a better chance of that fighting or that eradication of the bad cells happening. Right. So we're not only killing the tumor cell itself, that tumor cell's dying, but we think while we're doing that, we're actually also stimulating the immune system so the immune system can wake up and hopefully clear some other tumor cells that are in that area as well. So we think it's sort of a one-two punch there. But the big thing is causing that shrinkage of the tumor cell, right? You're not going to stimulate the immune system if you just slam the door shut and allow the tumor cell to stay there in this quiet state, you've actually got to kill the tumor cell to allow that activation of the immune system. So it sounds like you're starting in metastatic with breast cancer. Why, why there? Any, any, real, any reason why you're starting there versus all the other cancers out there? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a great question. And I think it's a little bit of historical, you know, that's sort of where we started as as we were on this sort of exploratory journey. And the main reason for that was that is there is a new class of drugs that was FDA approved in 2015 for the HR positive metastatic breast cancer patient. And those were the CDK4-6 inhibitors, the CDK4 and CDK6 inhibitors. They inhibit both of those kinases, but not CDK2. So they inhibited two of the three kinases, and those were really, they're blockbuster drugs. They are the standard of care for men and women that are either convert to the metastatic setting or are diagnosed in the metastatic setting. This is Ibrance, Fresenio, Kisquali. They essentially extend the remission window for most of our patients taking them and have really been amazing, an amazing addition to our cancer-fighting arsenal. The problem with those drugs is that most patients 
will with time become resistant to them. And they become resistant because the third kinase, CDK2, gets activated and does CDK4-6's job. So these three kinases really work in concert. And so if you only inhibit one half of the seesaw, CDK4 and 6, CDK2 can rise up and push the patient out of that remission state. So we started in breast cancer because there was really clear clinical evidence as well as a lot of scientific evidence about what happens that you can get these great responses if you inhibit one half of the seesaw. And then we started seeing what was happening by the activation of the other half of the seesaw. So that was the first place that we thought we should go into because we could inhibit all three, both halves of the seesaw simultaneously, CDK4, 6, which sit on one half, and CDK2, which sits on the other. So that's why we started there. Metastatic breast cancer is also, it's a really devastating disease. It is still a terminal disease. We have in this country about 43,000 men and women that will die from metastatic breast cancer annually. And these, many of these women are young, active, childbearing, and child-rearing ages. And so I think for all women, breast cancer is much more than a disease. It is something that we worry about all the time. Am I going to get it? Do I know someone that has been recently diagnosed? What about my mother? What about my sisters? What about my daughters? What about my friends? It is a specter in our lives from an early age. And so I think it's important to talk about breast cancer. It's important to research breast cancer. It is is very, very common. And we need to demystify breast cancer and be continually pushing new therapies into the clinical realm. And to also, you know, really make people aware that the best way to fight breast cancer is to to talk about it, to take care of ourselves, to urge our Congress people to fund it, and to support small biotechs that are doing innovative therapies. So, so I think that's why, for me personally, breast cancer is front and center. But we actually are now expanding into other tumor types because we do see that these three drivers, CDK4, 6, 2, and their regulator, P27, is regulating the drug-resistant state in esophageal cancer and ovarian cancer and endometrial cancer and non-small cell lung cancer, so numerous other tumor types. And so we are looking to expand our addressable market into these other tumor types as well. The CDKs, are they found in every cancer? Leukemia, you know, as you talked about some others, you know, different brain cancers, are they always consistent in all cancers? So the thing to remember is that cancer is just a normal cell that doesn't listen to the stops and goes in terms of proliferation, right? So you have tons of cells in your body, and every day those cells are dividing or not dividing. And even the cells that aren't dividing are actively choosing not to divide, right? And so in every cell in your body, that regulatory decision-making process, do I divide? or do I not divide, is made by CDK4, CDK6, and CDK2, and their regulator, P27. And so, you know, some cells divide all the time, right? So we talked about your skin cells, your intestinal cells. Those cells only live about six days. Those cells are almost continually dividing, right? They have to be birthing new cells because of the short half-life. That door is wide open, and the P27 is keeping that door wide open. That door is wide open in those cells. That door is slammed shut in other cells your neurons, your cardiac lineage, those cells are not supposed to divide. It's not that they can't divide. It's just the door is slammed shut and actively held shut. 
So P27 is keeping that door shut all the time. And then there's cells that only divide when they sense a signal. That would be your liver or your, the cells of your immune system, right? So when you, your body encounters a pathogen, let's say you have a virus or you get a bacterial infection, suddenly those immune cells, those T cells and B cells, those white cells, suddenly have to create an army. They need to proliferate. CDK4, CDK6, and CDK2, and P27 say, door open, start proliferating, make millions of new antibody cells to fight this infection. And then when the infection is conquered, and you know we need to get back to homeostasis, we need to get back to ground zero, P27 says, okay, door shut, stop dividing. And in fact, then those cells in the, the immune repertoire, they actually start dying, and, and we get back to the normal immune state. So every cell in your body is regulated. This, they're the gatekeepers of whether a cell divides or not divides. And it's those three kinases and their regulator, P27. And so what happens in a cancer cell is P27 doesn't really do its job very well, maybe, and the door is open all the time because it's getting mixed signals from other things saying, door open, door open. And it's like, okay, door open. And CDK4 is on, CDK2 is on, CDK6 is on. And what we're doing with our therapy is we're saying, okay, P27, stop listening to all of these other noisy signals, door shut, do your job, shut the door, put earmuffs on and just keep the door shut. And then also start killing those tumor cells. So what I love about this therapy as a biologist, it was born from a deep mechanistic understanding of how this pathway works. Yes, we were thinking about leveraging this pathway to create, to stop proliferation, but in reality, we were trying to figure out what P27 was doing. Who was it listening to? Where was it locata- located in the cell? Who was it talking to? Who was it sitting next to? We were literally just trying to learn about P27. And the more you learn about something in biology, the better equipped you are to harness and leverage that to do your bidding. And that's what we did. And so what, you know, as I said, I, what I love about this therapy is we're just harnessing the way nature has been doing door open, door shut for thousands of years. And I like to say this is, you know, millions of years of high throughput screening to find the best drug to inhibit these three high profile kinases, CDK4, 6, and 2. Nature's always going to trump humans. And so we should take our lead from nature and, and try to figure out how does nature do this? How, what's the best way of doing something? And can we improve on that? Can we harness that to make that into a drug? And that's what we did. We talked about a lot of different cancers on this and how this works. And I'm sure a lot of people who are listening are saying, this sounds amazing. They have a loved one. They're like, when? I'm sure you wake up every morning and say, when? And <laughs> and all of that sort of stuff. And I know you guys are getting to an exciting time in the process, but you're coming into year six of doing this. Talk about that runway. When do you think you see liftoff? Right. We're starting year six, uh, January 1st, 2023 is the start of year six. And, and, you know, I need to just remind people, right, when we started this in 2017, honestly, it was really just sort of like an academic idea. It was almost like an idea on a piece of paper, right? Like, this is how this thing works. I think we can do this. And that's the beauty of, of thinking broadly and, and trying to think with vision is that we said, I think we can do this. Let's try this. And so we spent five years demonstrating that our idea was right and actually making the drug and, you know, encountering challenges along the way, you know, and how are we going to make the drug stable and how are we going to make it at scale? 
right? It can't be made in a small little batch. We need to make gram batches. And so we had to conquer all of those things along the way, and we're continuing to conquer them. But now we're sitting here, you know, on the precipice of starting year six, and we really now have our clinical grade manufacturing process almost worked out so that we can make it in scale and we can make the drug stably. And now we're really setting our sights on dosing our first patient in our first clinical trial in 18 months. In 18 months months from now. So uh, by June of 24. Hopefully, yes. And there the big one caveat is that, you know, it costs money to do all of this. And so while we've raised money to date to get us to where we are, we actually are raising money now, a big series A round to finish this next push. And what that will entail will be doing what is called IND enabling studies. And so to get permission to test a drug in humans in the United States, you have to apply to the FDA and you have to demonstrate to the FDA that your drug is as safe as it can be and that you can predict, to the best of your knowledge, the side effects that this drug may cause in humans. And so to do that, we have to test it in different animal species to demonstrate you know, what's going to happen when we dose other animals. And then we also have to demonstrate to the FDA the evidence that we think we can beat the standard of care. Why is the FDA willing to take the risk to test this experimental treatment in, in vulnerable patients? And with that, you know, it's sort of a, an iterative process with the FDA. This is what we're presenting. They will give us questions and we will answer them, go back and forth. And then eventually we'll have that IND in hand, which enables us to start our first phase one trial. And that trial will be in our drug-resistant metastatic population. We'll recruit those patients as an alternative to chemotherapy. And you know anyone that enters into a clinical trial is both brave and helping further research. But also these days, we have so many clinical trials that really are extending the lifespan and are actually viable therapies. So, you know, that's where we have a very active clinical trial structure in this country. And so, you know, by going into a clinical trial, that's a real way that you might actually get access to an early stage medication. And so we hope to, from this first clinical trial, show that the drug is safe, that we're not causing, you know, a host of adverse effects. And even in this population that we're getting some early readouts of response that we're actually causing tumor shrinkage and we're getting some partial responses and some complete responses. And so that will be really exciting. And we hope to be able to recruit for that trial rather rapidly to get that data. So then we can start our phase two trial, which is a much larger trial. And we'll really try to show that we can extend those progression windows for these highly metastatic patients. So yeah, it's very exciting. We're, we're looking, you know, I can see a very clear path ahead. You know, we have to do X, Y, Z. Of course, there are challenges and risks along the way, but I we've assembled an amazing team. And so I feel very well suited and well, you know, we have the human capital to handle all of the problems that we will encounter. And we'll science our way out of all those problems because that's what we do as scientists. Stage one is usually a smaller group. Stage two is a much wider, broader group as part of the FDA approval process. One time somebody said to me, you need about a 18-wheeler truck bed of paperwork filed with the FDA in order to, I think somebody counted the pages one time and said that, well, that would fill a truck full of stuff. So there's a lot of documentation 
That is probably true. But you know what? I was talking to someone about this the other day. I actually think it should happen as fast as, you know, right? Our regulatory process hopefully is very rapid because we know that there are patients waiting for these drugs. But we want to have a lot of rigor. We are asking very vulnerable patients to enter into a clinical trial. And that is a level of trust that those patients have with the clinicians, with the, the people making these drugs. And they need to know that we have done our very, very best to ensure that those drugs are safe, that those drugs will do what we say they're going to do. We can't be spreading false hope, right? Like if we say we think that this drug can actually give you a non-toxic alternative to your disease, then we should live up to that, to our very best knowledge, right? I mean, clearly humans are not big mice, and so we never know exactly what's gonna happen in a clinical trial, but that 18-wheeler of paperwork is our very best attempt to try to ensure that we're doing things with integrity. That said, I hope that it they can read that 18-wheeler truck full of paperwork as quickly as possible because of the recognition that the patients are there waiting actively and they need those drugs. And and so you, you said something a minute ago about the anxiety, which is that's the anxiety I have, which is I know that, you know, every year that we take is, you know, in the metastatic breast cancer case, that's another 43,000 women that are dying, women and men. That causes me a lot of agitation, as it should. But that's what keeps us going. And, you know, by the same token, we use that agitation to think really, really hard and try to spin out things from our brain that can actually make a difference. So it's an amazing circle and I'm, I'm happy for that agitation. I'd love to have a day where we didn't have that, right? Where there was less urgency here, but we're not there yet. Well, when you're working as long as you have been on this, I mean, it's a lifelong commitment. It's a lifelong passion. So I have a great appreciation for what you're what you're attempting to do and and appreciative of it for sure. So for someone like you, what's it been like to be a science PhD, passionate about this, doing it for all the years that we've talked about? And oh, by the way, you have to learn how to raise capital through a venture, private equity backed environment. I've had the privilege of, or, or maybe not privilege, the experience of raising three rounds of capital back a long time ago for technology startup and everything like that and interesting process to go through three rounds of raising capital and things like that that can be very time consuming so how do you balance the ability to raise the funds you need to do this mission meanwhile you're also the bricklayer right so how do i go out the funds to get the mortar and the bricks at the same time i got to be laying the bricks well, the, the answer to that is also I have a lot of other bricklayers, right? And so now maybe I'm like the head bricklayer, but I have a, an amazing team of bricklayers. And I think you have to trust and surround yourself with people. You know, I always say, I don't want to be the smartest person in the room. I want to have every domain expert be smarter than I am on their domain. And we are very fortunate to have that. I have just brilliant people that are, you know, are believing in this mission and are laying those bricks every day. But the other thing is, you know, as a scientist, I think we're actually well suited to this because we are really good troubleshooters. So I can sort of distill down the problem into a very user-friendly vocabulary and sort of uh, share that vision. We are constant lifetime learners. So I've had to learn over the last five years about what makes a successful business and learn that it is so much more than just an idea, right? That idea on a piece of paper I have 
just gets you only so far. You need to be able to have a great company and, and to see and hear and, and validate your employees. You need to be able to interface with the people that have the money and to convince them. You need to, you know, really be strict on your budget and, you know, do all of those things. So, you know, I think because I've spent my entire life learning and had a very vertical learning curve for the last 30 years that I've been a scientist, that was an easy jump. It was just different things to learn. I wasn't having to like, you know, start from scratch. It was just, this is a different problem to solve. And that felt very comfortable. The other thing is, you know, I have been a professor for over 20 years now. And so part of my mission, my personal mission has been teaching medical students and graduate students and essentially convincing them of the power of science. You know, in my medical school teaching. It's to convince these young people that come in and think, oh, I don't need to know any science. I'm going to be an emergency room doctor, or I'm going to, you know, just treat patients that have diabetes. Why do I need to know science? Why do we need to know how the cell divides? And so to convince them that you need to, as a clinician, be a, a lifetime learner too, because science and medicine are constantly evolving. I say with pride, we wrote our new medical school curriculum in 2012, and the curriculum that we teach now in 22 is there's whole segments of the cancer block that weren't taught in 2012. So the field moved so vastly in just 10 years that their whole new, you know, the CAR T cells, we didn't, couldn't have imagined that in 2012. Immunotherapy, we didn't even teach that in 2012. Oh, medical students don't need to know that. That's not mainstream. I love that. I love the fact that every day we are reinventing. And so with that in mind, that's part of my job is to convince people, whether it's on a podcast or in the classroom or when I'm sitting across from a VC, that we are part of the future and that targeting P27 is a transformative way to deal with not only HR positive metastatic breast cancer, but lots of other cancers. And that, you know, join onto our into our, our mission because we are going to actually change outcomes for these patients. One last question, best case, worst case scenario, when is the drug on the market? Well, the clinical trial, let's say we start in 24, you know, we need to have a couple of years of clinical trials. So we're probably not on the market until 27, I would say, which sounds like a really long way from now, but it's probably not. But it would hopefully be in the clinical trial setting so we could access many patients as early as, you know, 24 in that first trial and then even 25, 26. So, you know, lots of things have to happen. I don't like to think too far in the future. You know, we've got to get through those first milestones. Not too far, not too far. We can see it on the horizon. And as we wrap up, I, I always end the, each episode with. So I'm going to give you two little quick stories. The first is the name Concarlo. So I have three children and their names are Connor, Carly, and Logan. So Concarlo is a amalgamation of their names because those are what better motivation to get up every day to go to work than to imagine a world where cancer is a different story for my three children. So they are my inspirations and my heroes. And the second hero is a very dear friend of mine who was diagnosed with multiple myeloma in 2013. And so she is essentially, she's my, my muse. In 2013, multiple myeloma is a really rough cancer. In 2013, the overall survival was probably less than five years. And so we hoped that 
you know, therapies would come along. And I remember saying to her, we don't know what the state of, of treatment for your disease will be in two years, three years, four years, five years. Let's believe in the power of science. Let's not stress. Let's just hope that there's going to be a lot of new therapies coming, getting approval. Because we knew a lot of the therapies that were in the pipeline. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And she is very much alive, very much very well. And she just received her CAR T-cell transplant in September for her disease. And in 2013, when she was diagnosed, CAR T-cells weren't even on the horizon for multiple myeloma. They were on the horizon for other leukemias, but not for multiple myeloma. And she is now the proud recipient of that therapy. And so she not only motivated me to you know, get going. Literally what she said is like, you know, what are you waiting for? If you think you have an idea that can be useful, then you should do something with it. And so I did. And then also she is the poster child, in my opinion, about why we do science and how science can actually very quickly translate into changing outcomes for patients with cancer. And so that is something that just makes me both so happy for her, but also so happy and so proud to be part of an establishment that can actually change the course of people's lives. So those are my uh, two sort of classes of muses, inspirations, and heroes. That's awesome. That's great. Well, Dr. Blaine, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about this. It's, it's really very exciting. And we call this the heroes of healthcare. And for a reason, it's, you know, for people who are boldly going out to with a mission and a purpose to do something. It, it started out of COVID and, and those healthcare workers who were putting themselves first to save people, but you're putting your life's passion and your life's work to save people. And that seems pretty heroic to me. So thank you very much for your, your commitment and what you're doing at Con Carlo. We'll stay close to the story as, as we can. And we just thank you for your time in doing this. You've been listening to Heroes of Healthcare. For more, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit us at heroesofhealthcarepodcast.com.